Tonight, academic James Lindsay joins us to discuss the famous Grievance Studies Project. I'm Roaming Millennial, and you're watching Uncensored. One of the academics who took part in the Grievance Studies Project, which was meant to expose poor research methodology in certain academic fields. If you aren't familiar with it yet, here is part of a video the team released about their initiative. Since approximately June of 2017, I, along with two other concerned academics, Peter Bergoshin and Helen Pluckrose, have been writing intentionally broken academic papers and submitting them to highly respected journals in fields that study gender, race, sexuality, and similar topics. We did this to expose a political corruption that's taken hold of the university. By this point, several of these papers have been accepted in highly respected journals, and one that claims that dog-humping incidents can be taken as evidence of rape culture has been officially honored as excellent scholarship. I'm not going to lie to you. We had a lot of fun with this project. The, the reviewers are worried that we didn't respect the dog's privacy. <laughs> that's the concern. But don't let that lead you to believe that we're not addressing a serious problem. If you have a few minutes, I'll try to explain. To be clear up front, we think studying topics like gender, race, and sexuality is worthwhile, and getting it right is extremely important. The problem is how these topics are being studied right now. A culture has developed in which only certain conclusions are allowed, like those that make whiteness and masculinity problematic. The fields we're concerned about put social grievances ahead of objective truth. So as a simple summary, we call the problem grievance studies. To test the depth of this problem, my collaborators and I dedicated ourselves to a one to two year secret project targeting top grievance studies journals with an agreement to publicly release our findings no matter what the outcome. We started officially on August 16th, 2017. By March, with two papers accepted and one published, it would be fair to say that we had become accepted grievance scholars. By June, it was three with one having been officially honored by the journal as excellent scholarship. By July, it was five. By August, seven. This shouldn't have been possible. So far, what we're learning is rather astonishing, but the data we've gathered require more analysis to fully comprehend. What appears beyond dispute is that making absurd and horrible ideas sufficiently politically fashionable can get them validated at the highest levels of academic grievance studies. All right, hi James, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem. Um, so you're, of course, one of the academics, along with Peter Bogosian and Helen Pluckrose, that released the Grievance Studies Expose. We did a whole episode about it. It was really interesting stuff. For anyone who's maybe not familiar with your own background, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, sure. Uh, I went to university to study physics originally, so I got a bachelor's degree in physics, decided that I did not like doing physics and switched to mathematics, did a master's degree and then a PhD in math, and that was in 2010, and then I left academia instead of continuing my academic career. Since then, I have been doing a lot of research. Primarily, I did a lot of research into religious psychology and moral psychology, originally into the philosophy of science. And all of these things kind of came together uh, and led me to apply those, those various talents to the, the grievance studies problem. Wow, so just a general renaissance, man. Very impressive. <laughs> yeah, I just can't settle down on a single academic field, I think. No, I mean, but that that's great that, I guess, thirst for knowledge is something that I think is, is very 
uh, laudable. For, for people who maybe haven't had the time to look into the grievance studies um, project that you, uh, Boghossian and Pluckrose did, I guess what inspired you to start looking at the way that these grievance studies are affecting academia? And for anyone who's not familiar with it, I guess what would you say was the, uh, I don't know, the bottom line of what you were hoping to achieve with that project? All right, I'll start with the bottom line to give everybody context. Uh, I we all kind of, the three of us kind of had a pretty serious suspicion after years of trying to engage what we called grievance studies in the end, but what would be usually considered things like uh, gender studies, critical race theory, queer theory, all of these kind of identity and cultural studies fields that uh, proliferate mostly through the humanities and kind of pretend to do sociology. So we got really kind of concerned with how they were, A, pretending to try to do sociology where they're not really qualified, and it didn't look like they were doing it rigorously. And B, the way that this was leaking out into culture, we saw that a lot on social media. And C, the way that... Um, to engage this with criticism or conversation usually got shut down and turned pretty ugly. So we got pretty concerned about that and watching, you know, one kind of academic or famous person, depending on what their field or their, their discipline is after another getting accused of sexism or racism where it just didn't seem to apply. And then when they try to defend themselves, they make it worse for themselves. The Nobel laureate, Tim Hunt, who made a self-effacing joke that had something to do with women in the lab getting pushed out of his job was one example. For me, Matt Taylor, who led the ESA project to land a probe on a comet, wore a bowling shirt made by a female friend of his covered in like anime chicks. And just the headlines right. were stuff like, um, I don't care if you just landed a spacecraft on a comet, your shirt is sexist and ostracizing. I mean, just this kind of complete lack of ability to pay attention to what matters when anything that can be construed as sexism or racism comes up. And then, of course, what happens to Matt Taylor? He's crying on TV, apologizing, feels horrible. Tim Hunt loses his position. It's a huge mess. This has happened to dozens of people. We see it even with, with people we would classify under the, the rubric of grievance studies, like Rebecca Tuvel, who published a defense of transracialism as a philosophy paper in Hypatia, paralleling the arguments for transgender. And she just got absolutely pilloried. And the paper, it turned out to be this huge controversy that almost wrecked Hypatia. I mean, it's just a huge mess. And this stuff just keeps going on. So you try to engage this in conversation and you just get called a sexist or a racist for disagreeing with it. And that seems to be a problem. So we decided to start looking at the literature and our expose started off trying to hoax the literature by writing fake papers that didn't engage with it at all and were just silly and stupid. And all of those got rejected. And finally, we got a rejection letter from Men and Masculinities that was right on the point. And we thought, oh, no, that was actually on Thanksgiving last year. So right around this time last year, we got this letter back from Men and Masculinities. And it was like, oh, no, this is I mean, we, we can't do it this way. So we changed gears and actually started learning the grievance studies literature, spent the next so whatever, November, end of November through um, June, so seven months or so, really studying it and putting out papers. We averaged one paper every two weeks. We ended up submitting 20 papers. Seven of them were accepted. Four ended up being published. One got honored. 
there were seven more that were still under consideration when we finally ended up going public with the project. And so we were trying to expose that the problems we suspected that are, to use uh, the, the philosophical term is epistemological, but that means how they produce knowledge and ethical, to show that those problems really do exist in this field and that they can be exploited to publish completely ridiculous and terrible and broken papers. Mm -hmm. And I think what was pretty shocking to me was, um, I guess, the light that cast on the whole peer, peer review process, because the, these weren't the journals that were accepting you weren't, you know, just some Joe Blow running an operation out of his basement. These were well respected within their fields. And I, I remember I was reading one criticism uh, to this project. I think it might have been from Salon. And their whole position was, well, if this I guess if this research would have been legitimate, then this would have been useful. Um, and that's kind of the point, though, the fact that, none, you know, none of this research was actually legitimate and that it was able to get through all of these stages um, w without anybody sort of checking up on that, following up to see wh whether things, um, you know, were falsified or not. As someone who is, you know, an academic, the fact that you guys have I guess, gone through this whole process. What has the reaction been like toward you now? Because now all of your names are on this. And of course, you have so many supporters. But I think there are a lot of people who maybe uh, are a little bit, I don't want to say triggered by what you've done, but uh, are, are really not appreciative. So have you noticed any backlash in your everyday, uh, I guess, activities within academia since this has gone public? Well, that, that's a slightly complicated question. Um, the bottom line of what we learned is that there are, are reasons not to trust how the literature within disciplines that have been corrupted by grievance studies do their work. Um, what they seem to be doing or what it appears to be doing from an academic standpoint is producing knowledge. But there's no way to distinguish that from what we did because our papers actually are the thing they are that right. and they blend in because they are what they are they are grievance studies papers and so there's a there should be a huge crisis of trust in things like what's coming out of critical race theory gender studies queer theory um, post-colonial studies and so on because we know how we wrote our papers as far as the backlash goes that kind of varies um i think that article that you were mentioning maybe is the one that appeared in slate there have been a few that are like that uh, and it looks like they didn't really engage with what we did or pay attention to what we did <laughs> no, very they much. they did not. They did um, not. There's been very little substantive criticism that's come out. I don't want to say that that is that there has been none. I mean, certainly, for example, and it's varied across us because Peter works at Portland State University, so he's actually in a university system. He just had a thing come out in their Portland, the Portland State Vanguard, which is their student newspaper, published an anonymous letter from a whole bunch of uh, faculty members who remain anonymous in a collective. And it's just, again, doesn't actually engage with what we did, but it's absolutely excoriating. It's way beyond a hit piece. Now I say that, and I don't want to create this like weird victim narrative around us because the responses that we've had are probably at least a hundred to one positive rather than negative. Mm -hmm. We've had so much encouragement. We've had so much uh, positive feedback and so little comparatively negative feedback that it's actually a very encouraging situation. And what we've been getting primarily is, I mean, besides, you know, kind of the slap on the back from from your Twitter everyman or whatever, what we've been primarily getting is a lot of academics writing us, thanking us in private, saying this is so necessary. I wish I could speak out, but 
I feel like I can't because either I'm coming up for tenure, I'm trying to get a job, I'm working on my dissertation and they won't pass me. It's all over my university. I don't know what to do. Please help. How can we fix this? And there's this huge, I think, silent majority probably in academia that if they all knew each other existed, they could start pushing back. And they don't because everybody's kind of cowed into silence because you see what happens. You see like with Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, what happened to Evergreen. It's students flip out and chasing people around with bats and protesting and all this crazy stuff. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen at Portland State with Peter, but so far it's been fairly mild beyond that that one uh, piece in the in the Portland Vanguard or Portland State Vanguard. So I, I think that the general reaction has been overwhelmingly positive and that's why I'm fairly optimistic that a change is in the works. People are sick of this. People are tired of being bullied by this. And they're ready for a sea change in what constitutes left-wing politics, left-wing academics, scholarship, and in particular, uh, liberalism. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm so glad that you mentioned that you are getting support from within academia because, you know, if I, if I look at people like uh, Dr. Bogosian, even Dr. Clay Rutledge, uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, like you mentioned, Weinstein, I feel like there are a number of academics who, you know, this isn't even necessarily a right versus left wing issue. In my opinion, this is uh, you focusing on, on a very specific, I guess, form of social justice ideology that seems to be pervasive right now for people who are maybe in the position where they have children who are going into university or their university student themselves, I guess from the outside looking in, what can we do to empower these academics who might feel like they otherwise, uh, I don't know, might be silenced into not giving any opposition to, I don't know, this, this type of ideological push toward their students? Because, I mean, I think a lot of people who are in academics ourselves, we can see this, we can recognize this problem, but we're maybe not exactly sure what we can do to offer our support to people like you guys. Right. So there's a, a number of things to say. So definitely this is not a right versus left issue. This is mm -hmm. an issue of scholarly integrity. Right. It's also an issue, to put it kind of uh, in colorful language, it's an issue of, of a bunch of gender nuns and the grand wizards of the diversity board <laughs> bullying people. You have a very small minority, except within academia and especially academic administration. You have a very small minority of people who actually feel and believe this way that are supported by a lot of people who think it's the right thing because they're not looking at it fully and not questioning it. But the second you actually look at this stuff, you look at the project that we did, you look at the papers we wrote, you look at what we've written about this going back over a year or two years before we even became public with the project, and you just see the bottom drops out. So the first thing I would encourage everybody to do if they want to help support us is to go to Mike Nana's YouTube channel. Mike Nana is documenting this with us and he's a award-winning filmmaker. He's doing a documentary about us and he's helping us get the message out. So he's running a YouTube channel right now that is gonna put out consistent content. And I encourage people to share those videos and share that, that YouTube channel itself. Uh, support it on Patreon if that's something you like to do because that's where we're really focusing our efforts on getting our message out and trying to educate people about what's going on with this. Uh, another thing that people can do more specifically kind of to the question you asked is I think that because 
Well, I'll tell you a story that I read a while back, and I don't know that it's a specific story. It may even be completely apocryphal, but there was a talking about there's a story about a town under the falling of the communist regime where everybody was kind of going through the motions of communism. Nobody really agreed with communism anymore. But everybody knew that if they were the first person to speak out, they're the one that's going to get dragged off to prison or shot or whatever the the deal was in that regime. But if everybody spoke out at once, that certainly couldn't happen. And so what you've got in this situation is you have a ton of academics who are rightly scared for their job. It's in, there are deep reasons that would be an entirely separate podcast to talk about why that is. And they're good reasons, so I don't blame them. But if they knew that there were so many other academics out there that feel similarly about this, that say stuff, they send me messages like whispering, don't tell anybody I said this, but everybody knows you've got them. You really got these guys and it's been needed for so long, but I can't tell anybody that I said that. Don't tell anybody I said it. I get this, so many of those, uh, more than, more than a handful, at least a day, even now it's been over a month. I still get these messages every single day. So if they have, I don't know if they set up kind of a whisper network or they talked <laughs> anonymously or something like this and became more aware of each other, that would be great. If some people are willing to take the risk and step up like we did, you know, more power to them. But it is a risk and we recognize that. Um, parents, people from the outside looking in, I would sincerely, you know, encourage people to look at what we've done and think twice before you major in these fields. Right. Think twice about sending or going to if you're a student, because I'd put it in personal choice before, a, like what somebody's parents are telling them to do. Uh, but even with, you know, sending your kids or sending yourself to one of these schools that's more heavily indoctrinated in this kind of stuff, I would encourage that people, you know, make their choices and point themselves in directions of schools that are trying to stand up for free speech, academic freedom, et cetera, that are defending cases of their faculty members standing up against this stuff rather than ones that are pillaring it and to just not major in this until it cleans up and becomes more rigorous mm -hmm. and on the show we're very much i guess engaged in what's happening on college campuses i think it's really important and as someone who is not i guess that far removed from her own college days it's definitely something i care about um mm -hmm. but what i find interesting is that uh you know looking at i guess the papers that you guys wrote and uh, just i guess Let's see. The whole climate currently on college campuses, I see it very much reflected in the broader culture. And so, you know, mm -hmm. I have had people say, oh, well, just don't go to college then uh, if, if you're so against this stuff. I don't think it's really that simple, though, right? Because I think it's there's a, a lot of a, a lot of influence that's being pushed that really extends beyond what's going on specifically in academia. So uh, I guess how would you speak to that? The, the idea that, hey, if we don't like it, just don't go to college. I don't know that that's necessarily the best thing, because if you want to become an engineer, you need to go to college. Right. If you there's nothing to say that everybody should have to go to college. It's probably better when more people are educated, et cetera. But there are plenty of career paths that are great without going to college. And I don't want to say anything bad about that and would encourage people who are actually drawn to that to do it and not feel as pressured to go to college. However, college is still really a good thing to go to for most people who are trying to get into some field that requires specialized education. And so it's not that simple. You can't just not go because you don't like this stuff. I would say, actually, that I'm kind of living proof, though, that you can engage with this stuff ironically, <laughs> and it doesn't sink in, right? So I could almost encourage students who liked what we did, who were thinking about going to college, 
go do your your courses and they're going to force you to take some of this um, either diversity stuff at a lot of colleges now or, you know, some of the social justice stuff and do what we did. Write what you have to write, get your good grade and then make a blog or something talking about the absolutely ridiculous stuff you wrote that you never believed in that was required to get your grade and just make fun of it until it falls apart. Um, that's certainly a thing somebody could be doing. And there are lots and lots and lots of college students who can, I've, they've reached out to me too. They can spin this stuff and not believe a word of it, like little masters. Mm -hmm. And if that was, you know, being kept on blogs, whether anonymously, anonymously or under their own names and being published, like, look, I had to take this diversity class. Here's the crap I wrote. I didn't believe a word of it. Here's why it's stupid and broken, but this is what it took for me to get an A. Or I wrote this and it challenged their narrative and I got the got a D and it's a D I'm the most proud of in my whole life or something, you know, just keep this kind of stuff going, get this message out. But there's no reason necessarily not to go to college. I think that's a choice that everybody needs to make depending on what they want to do with their future and what education they 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 feel like they need in order to get the careers that they're interested in getting. Uh, as far as connecting the culture, though, uh, what's going on on campus to the grievance studies literature to broader culture, I really recommend if people do go check out our videos that Mike has been making, I would encourage them to watch the rather long one that he has first on a playlist that's Helen Pluckrose, James Damore, and the second culture. Helen can draw a very tight straight line between the activism, if you want to call it that protest culture or whatever is going on on campus, draw a very neat straight line from that to the grievance studies literature and the mindset that's being taught coming out of disciplines of grievance studies, what we've called applied postmodernism. And I really encourage people to go engage with that if they want to see how that line can be drawn. And so I guess just to close off, as someone who has studied things from a more high, hard science perspective, as well as now dabbled in the grievance studies, um, how would you say that those types of things compare in terms of the methodology that's being employed right now? Because uh, I'm someone who studied social sciences and, you know, obviously political science, a lot of people can rag on that as sort of a precursor to gender studies in a lot of ways. But I, you know, what I always enjoyed was the quantitative political methodology that exists. Uh, you know, right. I mean, you obviously have like intersectional feminist international theory, right? But it's not all like that. Um, I guess what what would you say are the biggest differences you see right now between the sciences and the type of, quote, perhaps research that's going on in these grievance studies? Yeah, knowing how we wrote our papers, um, it's impossible to distinguish knowledge production and grievance studies from uh, forwarding prejudice and opinion through a system and basically doing the equivalent of money laundering on ideas to turn these prejudices and opinions into knowledge. So the methodologies are completely different. They're absolutely completely different. We started with the conclusions we wanted to forward, bent the literature around to make it work, and that's not how it works anywhere else. Right. The social sciences have more rigorous methodologies, and that's probably why we didn't end up getting any papers in sociology journals, for example, mm -hmm. for the critics who have been telling us we didn't have a control group. I do want them to explain how we can, we didn't intentionally build a control group, but I would like to know how exactly that works when we got zero papers in sociology journals and sociologists immediately seized upon that to say, see, even sociology is far better off than this. So what you really have going on here is is 
you have humanities people in fields like gender studies who have no rigorous methodologies working behind them pretending to be sociologists and that's ultimately the big problem as far as the hard sciences go it's just laughable to think that something like this could get through easily in the hard sciences certainly you could falsify data and be very clever about it if you analyze that data very very carefully and and accurately and correctly but the degree of peer review, which I do have some personal insight into, um, secondhand, I should say, in the hard sciences, uh, the idea that something like what we did could get through in that, in the hard sciences, is just preposterous. They would demand to know extremely high levels of detail about our data collection. If the data looked a little bit fishy, which all of our data should have looked fishy and or cherry picked or ridiculous, they would have demanded to see our data. In our dog park paper, the first draft said we put all of our data in a recycle bin in case they asked to see it. And that would would have been the end of that. Um, The statistical analyses would have been required, whereas one of our papers it was they were told they told us to take the statistics out and rely more on narrative that would never happen um and then the statistical analyses would have to be very rigorous and we'd be challenged at every turn on how rigorous our statistical analyses were there's just no comparison between the harder sciences and even the rigorous social sciences and what these people in the humanities are pretending to do well thank you so much for sharing this and for all the work that you guys invested into this project it definitely wasn't i guess a walk in the park for people who want to keep up with what you're doing uh, maybe check out uh, more of your work be able to support you where can they go they can find me on Twitter at Conceptual James. And like I said, the most important thing to keep up with and support is going to be Mike Nana's YouTube channel. That's It's just his name is the name of the channel. Mike is spelled the way it usually is, and N-A-Y-N-A is his last name. And you'll find one of his videos is my pinned tweet right now, so you can get to his channel that way if you find my Twitter. All right, great. And again, thank you so much for coming on. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Uh-huh.